I'm sure that Clive will introduce himself and share a bit about himself, but I'd just love to say I've known Clive for a number of years whilst he's been at Vineyard Church, and all I can say is that here is a man who I see who I'm encouraged by, a man who faithfully follows Jesus, loves the Word of God, and does all that he can to live his life by it. And I'm, exci- I'm just excited that he's going to be unpacking Nehemiah with us today. Yeah, I don't want to big you up too highly. But um, yeah, I'll leave it with you. Oh, can I just pray with you before we kick off? Yeah, Lord God, I pray that you would um, take all that you have helped um, Clive to prepare. And as he shares it, would our hearts be open to receive it? So would you speak through him this morning, Lord? Yeah. Come and move. Amen. I was wondering who he was talking about for a minute. <laughs> anyway, good morning. And um, for those of you who don't know me, let me introduce myself a bit. My name is Clive Wilkins. I'm married to Pauline over there. And uh, I sometimes say to her, you're my first wife, you know. I just, just like to keep her on her toes, you know. <laughs> but actually, actually, we've been, we have been married 50 years. And um, thank you very much. <clears throat> and uh, our good friends over here, Derek and Ruth. Oh, she's not here at the moment, but Derek and Ruth. We've also been married 50 years. We didn't know them at the time. Uh, but we were married just a few days apart and uh, just back a couple of months back here on this very spot, our pastor, senior pastor James and our site pastor Ian uh, prayed a blessing over us, which was a real encouragement to us. Cardiff Vineyard has been our church family for over nine years now and we've been part of the North Cardiff site since it started last October. Now, I came to faith when I was just eight years old, so I've, a long time ago, and, uh, <clears throat> and it was in a very loving and Bible-believing, but somewhat insular church, and uh, when I was an 18-year-old dental student in Bristol, um, I was told by someone that I really looked up to Christianity was a crutch for those who can't cope with life. Now, these days, I would have seen that as an opportunity for a really good discussion about faith. But back in those days, ouch. For a guy without much social confidence, living away from home and struggling to cope with a new environment, my spiritual world was really rocked. And what little confidence I had in sharing my faith evaporated. It took me about two years of research for me to establish for myself the reliability of the Bible and the evidence for the resurrection, neither of which I was aware of at the time. And I started to begin the process of discovering who I was, my identity in Christ. This was the first time that I'd experienced ridicule in opposition to my faith. And I share this experience because the title of this talk today is Keeping Faith in the Face of Opposition, Nehemiah chapter 4. 
If we are seeking to follow the call of Jesus as individuals and together as a church, as we seek to reach our neighbors and restore the city, one thing is sure, we will face opposition. Nehemiah chapter 4 is great because it shows us how to respond to that opposition. But before we read the passage, may I just lead us in a short prayer. Holy Spirit, only you can take your word and apply it to our differing needs and situations. We invite you now to come and do what only you can do. Amen. So first of all, what is this passage about? The way we're going to approach it is this. We're going to read a few verses at a time, and then I'll comment on the type of opposition which is experienced in those verses. So verses 1 to 5 first. They should pop up on the screen. Um, And this is what it says. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring those stones back to life, those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight. For they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So the first opposition that Nehemiah and the people faced is ridicule. And Nehemiah's response is prayer. There's some fairly tough stuff in that prayer, and it would be nice to be able to deal with it, but it actually would be something of a digression from the main thrust of what I'm sharing with you today. But if you're bothered by that prayer at all, then do come and have a chat with me later, and we'll see if we can think it through. But note this. Nehemiah doesn't argue or try to defend himself. He lays it out before the Lord in private and tells the Lord exactly how he's feeling. Let's read on. Verse 6 now. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it had reached half of its height, for the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Now the opposition is ratcheted up a few notches from ridicule 
to threats and intimidation. If we were to look at a map of the region in those days, we'd see that Sanballat is the governor of Samaria, which is to the north. And uh, Tobiah is from Ammon, present-day Jordan, in the east. And the Ashdodites, what a great name, the Ashdodites are to the west, they're on the coast. That was historically a Philistine city. And the Arabs are to the south in the Negev Desert. So Jerusalem is pretty much surrounded by enemies who are all threatening to kill and destroy in order to prevent the rebuilding of the wall. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, again, he turns to prayer, but this time with others. And they pray in a corporate prayer meeting. But not only does he pray, he also prepares and he plans to meet the threat. The end of the chapter, which we won't read for the sake of time, reveals more details of his strategy and preparation. Prayer and preparation go together. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Now as we return to this text, there is a step change. Up until now, the opposition has come from outside the people of God. Now it starts to come from inside. So back to the reading, verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there is so much rubble, we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, our enemies said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told us, Ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack you. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. And I looked things over, and I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our work. In verse 10, we see the people grumbling and complaining. They are frustrated and they are weary and the work is more difficult and demanding than they first thought. In verse 12, we see the people spreading rumor and gossip about the strength and intentions of the enemy. Nehemiah's response is further preparation, placing families together so they have a particular interest in defending their section of the wall. That's good psychology, isn't it? Really, really smart. And then he goes with an impassioned plea that they will focus on the Lord and not on fear because you can't do both at the same time. So that's what the passage is saying. But how relevant, really, is that to us today? 
a modern-day reader might be inclined to say, so what? What's the point? What we have just read took place 2,000 miles away, 2,500 years ago, at the end of the Bronze Age. What possible relevance is it to us in 21st century Britain in the digital technology age? Well, it is relevant for this reason. The evil one is still just as opposed to God's work as he always has been. Both in individual people, in the church, the people of God, and in society at large. And if he can't stop God's work, what he will do is seek to delay it, disrupt it, and discourage it. Satan has been around the human race for a long, long time. And he's got us pretty well sussed out. He knows what works for him. In actual fact, he's not very creative. He hasn't come up with anything new for a very, very long time. But he doesn't have to be, because what he used against Nehemiah today is still very effective. And of course, he has no shortage of willing human helpers, as we see in Nehemiah's day. In fact, if you trace the relationships with the four groups of people mentioned through the Bible, you find they've all got negative history with the Jewish people and an historical axe to grind. There is deep-rooted prejudice against the Jews. Now, these are all more or less self-governing territories of the Persian Empire and left to themselves pretty much as long as they deliver the tribute money on time. But each one of these surrounding groups stands to lose out politically and economically if Jerusalem's walls are rebuilt and it's re-established as the capital city of Judah. In fact, reading on in the book, a later chapter shows us that Tobiah the Ammonite was even using storerooms in the temple as a warehouse for his business interests. Nehemiah went ballistic. Human desire for power and money still exercise hostility if feeling threatened by the kingdom of God. Now, let's look at the four opposition tactics faced in this chapter. First one is ridicule. And ridicule is very effective because it humiliates and belittles us and it undermines our identity. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Do you ever sing that in the playground? What? How untrue is that? It's so not true. Because what other people say about us is hugely important to us. And it can be absolutely devastating, depending on who is saying it. How important, therefore, that we understand and truly grasp our identity in Christ. Just last year, James had a, a senior pastor, he had a teaching series about knowing our identity in Christ because it's so foundational. It came out again last week when he was preaching here. He mentioned it again. 
And what do we sing this morning, our songs this morning? You know, I am a child of God. So that's ridicule. Next one was threats and intimidation. And these are very effective because they undermine our confidence in God and they generate fear. Now, Nehemiah is right on the button when he encourages the people, don't be afraid of them, and insists encouraging them to focus on God. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. It's impossible to focus on God and your fears at the same time. It's one or the other. So if you are feeling fearful for any reason at all, just start focusing on God. I remember seeing a Disney nature film oh, quite a long time ago now, which followed the growing up of a, a baby grizzly bear. And it had wandered off and was confronted by a mountain lion, which could easily have killed it. The baby grizzly pulled itself up to its full height of about 18 inches, acting on instinct, and it squeaked out a growl, and, uh, and the mountain lion ran away. <laughs> and and as, you, as you saw the film, you, could, you know, Disney managed to make it look as though the baby grizzly was really proud of itself and its achievement. But then the camera panned back, and just a few feet behind this baby bear was an eight-foot-tall, 800-pound mother grizzly bear standing behind the baby. There's a lesson for us in there, I feel. God really does have our back when we are facing the opposition of the evil one. Rumor and gossip are effective because they're given greater credence when they come from within the family of God. But rumor and gossip are absolutely toxic to a church community. They undermine and will, if left unchecked, ultimately destroy our unity. One of our values as a vineyard church is that we seek to be a grace-filled community. And if you are a grace-filled community, there's absolutely no space for rumor and gossip to spread. And then the last trick that we're seeing in chapter 4 is, is negativity. And negativity is effective because if our brothers and sisters are negative and discouraged, discouragement is infectious. We can catch on to it so easily. If everyone else is feeling, oh... We can so easily go, oh. In this instance, they were weary, they were frustrated, and they were starting to burn out. And when that happens, I don't know if you've noticed, but life takes on a completely different perspective, and uh, it's distorted. You don't see things as they really are. And they were actually using these piles of rubble to, to build a wall. So the piles of rubble were actually getting smaller, much smaller than when they started. Yet they only saw them as a big hindrance to getting on with the work. Couldn't do it anymore. 
That's a timely reminder for us, isn't it, that the Christian life is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And we need to pace ourselves and not get to the point where we are running on spiritual empty. Often when we're under time pressure, it's our quiet time with the Lord that gets sacrificed. But that's when we need it most. When the pressure is on, we need to pray more, not less. I heard it said that John Wesley used to say, I'm going to be so busy today, I'll have to spend three hours in prayer instead of my usual two. But even if we scale that back to more manageable times for ourselves, it still makes the point, the busier we are, the more we need to spend time with God. So there, Satan has got some effective tools in his kit bag. But let's not big him up too much. As Bible-believing Christians, we believe in a big God and a small devil. We're going to look at three verses now from the Apostle John. And in each of them, when he refers to the world, he is not meaning the physical world, nor the world of people, as we sometimes use it, humanity, but rather to the godless secular philosophies, attitudes and systems that operate in life. So John 15, 19. Jesus says this, as it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Jesus is saying, you don't need to be afraid because I have chosen you. And if I've chosen you, I'm not going to abandon you. John 16.33 says this. Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. All right? Not you might do, but you actually, you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus is saying you don't need to be afraid because Jesus is already victorious. We recently remembered the 75th anniversary of D-Day. D-Day was the decisive battle of the Second World War. And while there were more furious battles to go before final victory, after D-Day, victory was assured. And really, both sides knew it. Now, 1 John 4, verse 4. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Here, John is reminding us, you don't need to be afraid because Jesus is within you by his spirit. The little devil of opposition is no match for the big God who lives within us. So, so now we say, what are we going to do about it? Now that we know this, how are we going to respond? I'm going to suggest three things, and they all involve prayer. Prayer is crucial. 
in each because it prayer is how we grow and deepen our relationship with Father God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. And it's how we build our confidence and trust in God. So the first one is this, watch and pray. If you have not been a Jesus follower for very long, you may not have experienced much in the way of opposition. In 2 Corinthians, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, uh, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Jesus told his followers to watch and pray. The wa- this watching is not a passive observation of life passing you by, but it's actually it's a seeking to understand the culture of our society and the signs of the times and what lies behind them. If you feel unaware of his schemes and unprepared for opposition, then the Holy Spirit has gifts available to us. He has the gifts of wisdom, knowledge, and spiritual discernment. You know, at the end of the service, we always have an opportunity for prayer ministry. And uh, it may be that you feel, I I could do with one of those gifts. Perhaps a bit more than one. God's very generous. But if you feel that, then, you know, do make yourself available to come for prayer afterwards. There are people here who'd love to pray for you to receive those gifts of the Spirit. Second thing is, as Nehemiah did, prepare and pray. Some practical suggestions for preparation. Again, couched in prayer. To go back and make the point once more. Make sure you fully grasp your identity in Christ. If you don't feel confident in your identity, then a good place to start exploring would be Ephesians chapters 1 and 2. And take time to just meditate on the word. Let it soak in and pray through those chapters. And I guarantee if you do that, you will come out the other end and you will be saying, I am a child of God. Second thing, make sure you prioritize a daily time with God. If you read through Ephesians chapter 6 about the the armor, the spiritual armor that God has given us, then the only two offensive weapons are the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and prayer. So we so much need regular time taking in God's Word and in prayer because it will enable us to stand in the face of opposition like nothing else can. And the third thing is make sure you have fellow believers who will support you and pray with you and you with them. Jesus never intended that Christians were to fly solo. This is one of the reasons that small groups are such a high priority in Vineyard. We need each other 
We will not win the battle on our own, but we will together. Third thing, um, before I do that, you know, if, if one of those things has struck a chord with you, I would say, again, don't just leave it up there and say, I'll think about that later, next week, next month, next year. Do something about it now. Come out for prayer and, and, and ask others to pray with you and help you with those things. Now, lastly, and we are, this is genuinely lastly now, um, persevere and pray. If there's one thing that Nehemiah would say to us today, it would be don't give up. 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 The Apostle James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. I don't know much about uh, President, American President Calvin Coolidge, but he said this about perseverance. Press on. Nothing can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are the overwhelming power. If you are feeling under the cosh at the moment, feeling the pressure, finding it hard, really hard to keep going, then um, perhaps you too need the support of your brothers and sisters in prayer ministry. Charlton Heston was the star of the movie Ben-Hur. Cecil B. DeMille, as producer, wanted Heston to learn how to drive a chariot for the all-important chariot race at the end of the film. It would lend greater authenticity to the film. Heston was willing to take lessons, but learning to drive a chariot with four horses abreast was no simple matter. I think I can drive the chariot, said Heston, but I'm not at all sure. I can win the race. DeMille replied with a grin, Heston, you just stay in the race. I'll make sure you win. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Father God is whispering in your ear right now, just stay in the race. I'll make sure you win. Amen.